Greetings again, everyone. I just wanted to mention that we have some special guests staying with us at our home over the weekend. A minister in the Church of God for the last 13 years, and for the past several years has been a young man who has not been all that appreciative of some of the situations inside the parent organization. I won't explain all of that, but I at least want him to say hello to you. I used to play basketball with him up at Big Sandy many years ago. He's a Big Sandy graduate, Mr. Charles Gross. Charlie? Thank you very much, Mr. Armstrong, and good afternoon, everyone. It is a delight uh, to be here, and I say that uh, with extreme joy. I brought my Bible up here, but I'm not going to open it, or we'll be here a long, long time once I get started. You know how a preacher is. He doesn't know when, to s he, he doesn't know when he's said enough and when he should sit down sometimes. Uh, we uh, hopefully have tried to refine that over the years, and we have shortened the length of our sermons and become more meat. I would like to just say a couple of things. Uh, about myself and my, my wife, Judy. I'll call her lovely. I hope you would all agree. Uh, she's gone through the recent, I call it expunging, uh, that I have gone through. Uh, and I remember hearing on the tapes from Tyler the analogy that was drawn uh, with a barnacle on the, the underside of a ship and taking the crowbar and trying to pry it off. Well, that's a process that's been going on a long time in my life, actually several years, and I was just so tenacious, unfortunately, that when I would get just a little bit loose, I'd send out something else to grab a hold and hang on and hang on and hang on. And just recently, my wife and I were able to come to conclusions that many of you have already come to a good many years ago, and that's led us to where we are now. My, my daughter, I have an eight-and-a-half-year-old daughter. I have another one who's about two-and-a-half. She asked a question. And uh, she came in the other day, and a little girl was talking with her, and she said, these, my daughter and this little girl were talking, and they said, uh, this little girl said to my daughter, she said, well, we're, we're going to have a party, and we're not going to invite so-and-so over because she's not a Christian. And uh, I was listening to this conversation, and uh, Tanya looked up at me, she said, Daddy, she said, am I a Christian? And uh, I looked at her, and I said, well, honey, that's a long story. Uh, I'll be sure to give you the answer to that later on when you can understand it, but I sort of covered up for her. And I think that's where my wife and I were uh, several months ago, asking, well, are we Christians? Knowing the answer hopefully was yes, and yet knowing that there was a way that was being preached that we had heard on tapes uh, that showed a better way. And I would like to compliment and express my extreme appreciation to uh, those men and all of you here who are the team or that machine that has been a vehicle in allowing my wife and myself and our family to take this new direction in life. It was a big decision for us. Uh, I'm glad it's behind us and we only see the, the future as a rosy prospect. I now live in Denver, a great city to live in. Uh, I'm glad I'm there. Uh, there is a group of brethren who meet there and we look forward to the opportunity to fellowship with them in whatever capacity uh, God allows that to be uh, worked out. I would like to express my gratitude, as I mentioned, to all of you who have made this machine work, and especially I want to say something about Mr. Dart. I hope he doesn't mind. I remember initially when Mr. Dart sent a tape out, this was in the very early days of all the trauma, that was entitled uh, something along the line, a letter to the ministry. I don't know if all of you remember that or not, but I remember it because he was talking to me. And I was riding along in an automobile with another minister, and we were discussing it, and Mr. Dart has his ability. Uh, many of you have noticed it. What he does, I like to draw the analogy of being in a cubicle, a four-walled room with four doors. 
And what he does is you're sort of listening over the, the intercom and he starts speaking to you and he'll say something that you know is true and yet you don't want to admit it. And so what you do is you turn to the door to get out and you find that just as you get ready to open that door and walk out, he says something else which makes you admit that what he said is true. And he places a sword right there in the door and you can't get out. And you go to the other door. And you, you but, you know, this but, I'm going to get out, but Mr. Dart doesn't understand. Just by the time you say that, he'll say something else, and you open the door, and there's a sword. The sword being God's word that you can't refute. And pretty soon, you've tried every door, and there's nothing to do but stand there and admit that what he said is exactly right. And then you have to confront the truth. And when you do that, um, that takes you in strange places, and yet it's a beautiful place and a beautiful direction to go. I would like to also just thank briefly uh, Mr. and Mrs. Armstrong for their well, gracious hospitality in taking care of my wife and I while we were here. Um, why am I here? Well, they extended a, an invitation of fellowship and uh, work circumstances out that we could come here. We kept them up into the wee hours of the morning last night. And I do apologize. Uh, since we are so recently uh, out of the world wide, we had to go back and rehash some of the old healed wounds of the past few years, but in so doing, even though I know it may have been partially painful to them, it has reinforced us and given us the encouragement that, that we need. Uh, let me conclude by just saying this. As a, what am I? A lame duck minister, I guess. I, I'm not sure what I am. Uh, my credentials have been revoked, and I have been asked to turn in my stationery, which was the final blow. <laughs> I mean, anything, anything but the stationary, brethren. I mean, you know, take my car, you know, anything but not my stationary. <laughs> Phenomenal. But anyway, uh, traveling along not too long ago with another minister in the worldwide, <clears throat> he was commenting about having heard Mr. Armstrong on the, over the airwaves, and I, I was talking, well, I've heard him too. You know, we all listen. I think most of the ministers in the worldwide really do listen. And they know what's going on, and they're very anxious to, uh, to know what comes out of Tyler. And this minister was trying to explain why he did not agree. And he says, well, you know, I've listened to Mr. Ted Armstrong, and, and he's just watering down the truth. And I said, he is? He's watering down the truth? I said, I, I just heard the same broadcast you heard, and what I heard was stronger and better and pointed to a better way than I have ever heard on the airwaves. How can that possibly be watering down? And all I'd like to say is for all of us as a group of individuals uh, headed toward God's kingdom and God's family, if we can just realize something, and I speak from my personal perspective, having pastored just recently uh, two churches, is that you folks, in the effort that you're putting forth, are reaching some people. It's a slow process, and it's gradual, but it's working a little bit by little bit. And I'm not in the numbers game. But I know in my uh, absence from the Worldwide Church of God, I have a great deal of joy. But my joy has a single tear or two for all those people that I want to know what I know and have the freedom to worship God without all the pharisaical man-made traditions that are placed upon us. The truth has got to go out. And whether you know it or not, in little sheltered areas, at least rod pastored, they have no idea what's going on in Tyler. No idea. They don't even know what happened to Stanley Raider. And if you don't know that, you are truly sheltered or kept in ignorance.
but they don't know. So what I see here in Tyler is a very, very positive thing. I see that it is a way of life that is proper in God's sight, and I just am tickled to death that it has been made available to my wife and I and my family. And it's a delight to uh, share together in fellowship with all of you. Final thought. Uh, read back in Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, a posture is given of Jesus Christ. He is said to be sitting at the right hand of, of God, the majesty, the power on high, sitting there. And then I read back in uh, Acts chapter 7 that he's standing up. Remember when Stephen was being uh, murdered and being attacked, and all of a sudden the posture of Jesus Christ seems to be changed, almost as if he, he's sitting down in, in a rather placid or calm position, and all of a sudden one of his servants or one of his people is being maligned or attacked, in this case actually murdered, and it brings, if I may illustrate, it brings Christ to his feet to stand up for the injustices, although he did not stop it. He did not stop it, and it went on. But I find encouragement in that, and I'd like to believe that Jesus Christ has stood up for all of us. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't be here, and I just want him to stand up for others. So thank you all for all that you do to make that, that light go out, that word, that message, that hope. It's really something tangible to hold on to. I hope I can share with all of you in that opportunity of getting the message out and preaching the gospel to reach, I don't know how many, but reach a few more like me, would you? Because I needed it. Thank you very much, Charlie. Appreciate uh, the brief comments that you made. He is going to be working with the brethren in the Denver area, has already submitted his letter to the ministerial council for approval of his ministerial credentials with the Church of God International. That will be sent out probably this week. And of course it's up to them uh, as they look at his record of 13 years in the ministry and pastoring several churches from the Salt Lake City, Utah area over to North Carolina, including a couple of fairly large churches. So uh, I wanted to reveal now that even though Charlie and his wife Judy have tried to be very, very loyal, and they were totally loyal toward the organization that paid their salary, there was never any reason why in the sermons that he brought, whether in Salt Lake or over in North Carolina, that he could not preach the truth of God. He was never muzzled or told that he had to preach certain things that were lies or were not the truth. But over a long period of time, when you do not preach the name of a man or you do not bear down on fear or government, and that is not your continual theme, but your theme is one of love or of patience or of faith or of goodness or of prayer or of service or Christian living or overcoming or what have you, you are found out and you become suspect even by members of your own congregation who will write letters to headquarters and wonder why you are not espousing a little more closely the party line difficulties arise. He had the audacity to request of the powers that be in Pasadena a transfer. The reason was their daughter had a serious asthmatic problem, became quite ill, they became alarmed, went on for many, many months. Even her hair was beginning to fall out, and the little girl was suffering. They had a high pollen count. It's quite humid and a good bit of air pollution of maybe a more natural type. And they requested in this very large uh, worldwide organization a transfer to a higher, drier climate. They were given Hammond, Indiana as the only choice. 
where he could be an assistant or an associate, I understand, under some other man where he had been the pastor over two large churches. Hammond, Indiana happens to be in one of the most polluted parts of the big industrial belt of Chicago, Flint, of Hammond, that whole area around the southern part of the Great Lakes region where the automobile industry and all of the other industries are there. It is a polluted area. It's filled with soot. It's a very dense population. He expressed a certain amount of dismay over that. That got him into trouble with the powers that be, and it's a long story that I won't go into. But uh, I want everyone to know out there on the tape program who will hear this tape a week later, and all of the rest of you, that we are not seeing a phenomenon of a man uh, who could be accused by some who choose to have the standpoint of an us-them mentality who would like to see division, who want to put the worldwide church over here as the enemy and uh, have some big separation between us. I've said for years, I don't recognize that. I'm not going to play that game. There is no division between us at all. So if there are those who are going to view Mr. Gross and his wife as people who stayed right in there in the worldwide and therefore were, quote, the enemy while we were enjoying the feast in 1981 or 1980 or 1979 or when all of us were huddled together in uh, Jekyll Island in 1978 observing the Feast of Tabernacles, such is not truly the case. He's been listening to tapes. He's been very close to another young man who came out of the worldwide a long time ago. We had dinner with Charlie and his wife uh, several years ago, but because of wanting to be loyal and not wanting to appear at a campaign where I was preaching, he didn't. It wasn't because he didn't want to come, because he felt he shouldn't, uh, or else they would just axe himself and his family, and I would be the end of that. So I know the people in Denver are going to be very pleased, and we certainly are, to see that, as he says, little by little, God is causing some of those that have the ability and the experience to provide the kind of loving and caring leadership to the people of God that is needed in the church. So we want to say we're very happy to have Charlie Gross down here visiting in Tyler. A lot of you have traveled overseas. Many of you have gone to the nation of Mexico. And if you haven't, you have seen enough movies and enough television programs that you're at least a little bit familiar with the religious ceremonies of other nations. So that if you were to see Nepalese in their rusty brown robes with the bald heads kneeling by the prayer wheels in a little creek in Nepal, or you were to see a Roman Catholic bishop at Il Duomo in Milano going up and lighting candles or bowing or perhaps burning incense, or you were to see the people in a Middle Eastern capital such as Amman or Cairo hearing the strident voice of whom I call the midnight haranguer in the middle of the day or middle of the night and all of a sudden the cabs stop and the people stop and they all bow and they bow and you see this going on in Libya or Egypt you know what is happening if you were in Hong Kong and you were looking for a certain business you noticed a little pot by the door and there were a whole lot of burnt punks, what appeared to be, I called as a boy, a punk stick, with which I lit firecrackers. And there they were, all burnt and fizzled out. You would know you were looking at joss sticks. And if you talked to a Chinese, you would discover as to whether or not he had good joss, uh, which may be roughly translated luck in our English language, and that they burn incense to their gods and to Buddha. 
You know by now that when you walk into a Catholic cathedral and you see guttering in their places, hundreds of candles in the little niche in one corner of the church, and the people have gone up there devoutly crossing themselves, they light the candle and they put it in its place, that in their mind, over the hours of the life of that candle, be it 20 minutes or 20 hours, as it burns, the smoke, which is now polluting the interior of the cathedral, is actually something that God likes. God likes the smell. He likes the odor of a burning wick and of wax. Now, there are people in this world who believe that God is appeased by human body English and that God is appeased and pleased by smell and by odor. It's work to get on your knees and pray, so people have invented various methods of having other artifices or machinery or things do the praying for them. They can light a candle, and that's prayer going up. They can put a wheel in a stream. There it isn't milling grain. It's just turning and tinkling away. And as it turns with its little religious insignia on it, it's sending up prayers, they think. Or they can put a little wheel that turns in the wind, or little cymbals or chimes that tinkle on the front porch. And each time it tinkles, it makes a sound pleasing to God. And so they take God, and they consign God to some area or other, which is like a strange, many-headed being or creature or a monster whose wrath must be appeased, who loves the smell of anything from burning fish, as it says, I think, in Second Esdras in the Apocrypha, that demons may be chased away by the smell of a burning fish. One little clue as to whether or not the apocryphal books of the Razdawe version, the Catholic version, the Catholic version of the Bible, are really accepted texts or whether they are among those books of esoterica, the hidden mysteries that do not belong correctly in the Word of God. God does not uh, cause demons to be frightened away by burning the entrails of a fish. God is not impressed by tarot cards or Ouija boards or the line on your palm or the number of hairs on your head or frogs' knuckles or bats' wings in a chamois bag carried around your neck. And he isn't impressed with wheels or joss sticks or with papal pomp and ceremony, and neither is he impressed with the prayers of millions of Christians or congressional prayer breakfasts, nor is he impressed with high mass at Il Duomo or St. Peter's in Rome. Almighty God is not impressed with man. There is very little we can do to impress God. In the sixth chapter of Matthew, beginning in verse 5, Jesus said, Well, I think I'll read up to that because it really bears on what is to follow. Take heed that you do not your alms. The word alms really means righteousness or your righteous deeds. Now, Joe said we need to do something. He didn't spell out specific things. He's done that before, and others have, and we've heard many times out of the pulpit, though he certainly touched upon praying for the sick and visiting your brethren. And uh, our song leader said, visit new people. That's something you can do. And, of course, we know all the analogies of the Bible, of even praying for our enemy. We know the analogy of the Good Samaritan, or the parable of the Good Samaritan, where the others, the leaders in the community, including even a Levite, wouldn't touch an injured man lying along the street. But the pariah of society would. There's so much we must do. Your alms, of chapter 6, verse 1, is your righteous acts, your good deeds, the things you do as a Christian. Take heed that you do not what you do before men. Wow. 
Have you ever seen people who seem to delight in doing what they do before a man? And that's basically the only time they ever do it. I was hearing a story coming in. Judy Gross was talking about having seen Mr. Mondale, the uh, man who is now going to become, uh, hopefully, he hopes, a uh, Democratic nominee for the presidential elections. And he was referring to a group of serving people as uh, riffraff. And then when they had the table set and the meal served and everything, he took the pulpit and he's up there. Pulpit is probably a good word. I think it was dais or podium for him, but he sounds like a Protestant evangelical to me anyway. But anyway, Mondale is up there. And now all of a sudden, these same people to whom he had earlier referred as riffraff are just the salt of the earth. And he's just one of the human beings out there with the rest of them. And laboring man understands the heart of the people and all this. But he said, get this riffraff out of here. Get these people away from me. I don't want them around me and so on. Quite a change of pace there all of a sudden. When he gets up in a pulpit, he is the champion of the little person, and the down and out, and downtrodden, and the poor, and the elderly, and all of that. Well, he wasn't quite practicing privately what he was preaching publicly. It's easier to get people, believe it or not, to join an anti-pollution league and go down and uh, perhaps uh, march back and forth in front of City Hall with a placard than it is to get them to stoop over and pick up a pop-top or a gum wrapper. It's easy to get people to subscribe to causes. Do not these religious deeds, visiting people, giving people money, giving them a sack of groceries, helping them in some way, sending them a card, writing them a letter, praying for them, before men. Oh, then you mean it's better instead of taking a big double sack of groceries that cost you about $90, and it could today, and ringing the front doorbell to your sister who is poor and in need, that it might actually be better to sneak up there later on at night and leave them at the back doorbell, and, uh, the back door, I should say, and let her discover them in the morning? Sounds like that's what it's saying. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father who is in heaven. Therefore, when you do your good deeds, your alms, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. Now, this is a fascinating text. Do you realize what it's saying? It's saying they literally did that. I've never been somewhere where I've seen that done, but I can't imagine the embarrassment, the humiliation that at least you would think you would experience if someone were to come in here with a funny little guy with a trumpet, and he's got his checkbook in his hand, and he walks up to me, and all of a sudden the funny little guy raises the trumpet and lets out this uncertain sort of a, that's fine, you're going to, to turn and look. It will get your attention, you know, a trumpet, whether it's in the street or a closed room, the guy whips out his checkbook writes out a check, rips it off, there you are, Garner Ted, the guy puts his trumpet away and the two of them walk out. You have been forced to take note that this guy gave an offering for the work because somebody blew a trumpet. Apparently, apparently the Pharisees literally did that. They had the funny little guy with a trumpet who went along and sounded a trumpet. It could be that it's an analogy and that sounding the trumpet is merely a metaphor and that it really means calling attention to it in some manner or another. So you let people see what you did. I well remember a young man that came running up to me one time. I was engaged in an athletic endeavor of some sort. It may have been a basketball game, I've forgotten, or tennis or something. And he came running up and he wanted to ask me some kind of a question. He said, you know, I have been fasting for three days over this. Well, I knew the fellow rather well. And he was one of these types. I won't go into that in detail, but it was a, a four-flusher type, if you follow me. And, it was just one of the flaws of his personality. And so I asked him, 
Now, why did you tell me that? And he was somewhat taken aback and flustered. I said, really, I wish you hadn't told me that because it's already colored our conversation. It says in the Bible that when we fast, we should do it secretly and in private. We anoint our head, put the oil on there, or we spray it in place as we do today. And uh, I think that hairspray was invented just in time for people like me with thinning hair. And uh, we appear to people not to be fasting. We don't say, I'm fasting today, I feel bad. Or, or we don't say, I fasted for three days last week. The minute you do that, you're inviting a comparison. The person you're talking to obviously didn't fast. You're already one up on that person. Years ago, I saw a movie, which was, I think, in 1939, maybe 40. We weren't quite in the war, but Hitler was waging war against Britain and Europe, of course, and the darkest days for London were upon us. Charlie Chaplin and some other actor did a movie in which they characterized Hitler and Mussolini. And they had two X's on their hats, and it was called the Legion of the Double Cross, or, you know, the swastika, which was a twisted cross. And in one scene, they were in a barber shop, and they were each spouting off about how great they were. And Mussolini looked over, and Hitler had reached down, and he had grabbed this pump like the old barber chairs used to be when I was a boy to get a haircut, and he had pumped it a few times and lifted his seat up a few inches above Mussolini. Mussolini looked over there, and he noticed that, and he went spouting away, and he pumped himself up, and he went up a few inches above Hitler. Hitler looked over there, and he pumped himself up above Mussolini. It absolutely became the most hilarious scene as they went higher and higher, and finally out the roof, the glass broke and cascaded in as these two men were trying to pump themselves up higher than the other. I've never forgotten that scene, because a lot of us do that when somebody starts a story, and it's one-upmanship, and we tell a better story. He had a, an old car that, that went uh, 100,000 miles on what is it, one set of tires. We had one that went 200,000 miles on a set of tires. And on and on it goes, one-upsmanship. In some way, people like to call attention to themselves. They do it by dress, funny hats, affected mannerisms, body English, and many people do it in religion. Now, I have found that there are many, many forms of vanity in the world, and believe it or not, there is a vanity of humility. There is a vanity of religion. I've had not only contacts, but confrontations in times past with many people who have that kind of vanity, not the least of whom are some of those. It seems nearly always they are ladies, and oftentimes they belong to a minority race. I don't know why that is of a particular religion who sends its people around in the mission fields in our own country, door to door, attempting to force literature and their doctrine upon you. There's a mental process through which these people go. If they're standing on a street corner with a book or a magazine, obviously religion is in the magazine. Each one of the people who go by, they have to go through a process in their mind thinking, well, you poor, uninformed, unenlightened infidel, you're not called, you're not chosen, you're rejecting God's truth, but I know the truth. I have the truth. I have something inside of me that you don't have. When they come to your door, there is no way you can outrighteous these people. You can try, but you, you forget, you're barking up the wrong tree. There's no way you can impress them with how graciously you say, no, sorry, I'm not interested. They are going to, as you close the door, walk out to the step, pick up one shoe and, and carefully brush it, and then the other one, and they're dusting off the very dust of their feet of your defiled, 
front door and door stoop as they go on their way, and they're confident that they have been rejected, that they know the truth of God, and you do not. I have seen in my lifespan that there is a vanity of age. There is a vanity of the poor. There is a vanity of ignorance. There is a vanity of religious hobbyists who delve deeply into a bottomless pit of every sort of religious exercise which is done for one purpose only, to decorate their own person and out of vanity. Paul said in one place, Though I give my body to be burned and do not have love or charity, I am a sounding brass and an empty tinkling cymbal. Can you imagine someone going to the extent of offering themselves in martyrdom for the sake of vanity? You'd better believe it. Human beings have done it, and they do do it. Therefore, he says, don't sound a trumpet as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, where? In the churches and in public places, that they may have the glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. That's all a reward there is, whatever glow they get out of thinking, guess what's going on in their mind? They're looking at me and they think I'm spiritual and I'm religious. Again, he says, metaphorically, do it in secret. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand does. Obviously, your brain is in control, so it's a metaphor. It's saying, you know, do it secretly. Do not do it ostentatiously. Verse 5, And when you pray, you shall not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corner of the streets, the corners of the streets. They love to pray standing out there in public. They love to do it. As a boy, I grew up in an in a, a, a church environment, a climate, I'm searching for the right word here, uh, quite different from the one that I came to know in the 50s and 60s. It was a church climate in which there were audible prayer meetings in which the ladies of the church and all the gentlemen of the church got physically on their knees behind pews and prayed audibly around the room one after the other. I've related it before. I won't belabor it except to say that even as a child, I began to notice a certain inexorable pattern. There were certain people who would wait till the very last and would try to outwait my dad. My dad was willing to wait till the cows came home. He would stay there till midnight, till Mrs. Fisher prayed. If Mrs. Fisher didn't pray, he wasn't going to pray. It would drag on. Everybody in the room would pray. Maybe half of the kids, for all I remember. But Mrs. Fisher hadn't prayed yet. My dad wasn't going to pray. He was going to pray last. Mrs. Fisher was determined over those years she was going to pray last. She never got to pray last. But she tried very, very hard to pray last. I remember altar calls and people literally coming to the altar. I have been in such embarrassing services in the Church of God in my past years when a young man, a teenager, who was known to do handstands on his motorcycle going by in front of my house to impress my older sister and was thought of as being a boozer and a carouser, would actually be pointed out by name in a revival type of a service. Oh, brethren, we all know that young William here is going the way of Satan the devil, and his poor beloved family right here know that he's going the way of Satan the devil. Oh, let's pray. For the organ is playing. Won't you come? There's an altar call. All of you pray for William. Bill, Bill, hear the call of the Lord. I mean, that is heavy stuff. You're right there in the, the room, and the pastor is six feet away pointing at your schnoz saying, you are a sinner. You need to be up up here with your father and your mother and your sister here bawling, won't you come? I mean, that's heavy stuff, and I was there. I've seen it done. 
Now that's getting it out in public where you can see what is going on. And I'll tell you, I learned that people enjoy that kind of thing. They enjoy it. People will go, all you've got to do to get a crowd, you mark my words, pitch a little tent, and you can take a little hand-lettered sign and put the R upside down. I might even get you a bigger crowd if you do, and say revival on any street corner in a vacant lot and put 7.30 p.m. and get in there and start to talk and preach, you will have a crowd because that is the form of entertainment that many people really like. He says, don't do it to be seen of men, but you, when you pray, enter into your closet. Now, when you get into your closet, ostensibly the closet is soundproof, we think. And when you have shut the door, pray to your Father, which is in secret, and your Father, which sees and hears, that's what's connoted here, shall reward you openly. But when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. Vain repetitions. You ever heard anyone in vain repetition? I've heard many sincere people, even in the church, who just through an oversight or perhaps ignorance, they don't mean it, will say the name of God way too often and just over and over again, every third word, address God or Christ that isn't what is really meant, but I think that if we really understood the power that is in that name, if we held that name in reserve for awesome and special occasions and gave it the glory and the honor that the names, the various names of God deserve, uh, rather than using them almost casually and sometimes perhaps like spiritual salt and pepper at the end of a prayer to flavor the entire proceedings, that we might have greater answers from God. When you pray, use not vain repetitions. I remember a radio program years ago called The Rosary Hour. I've never heard it since. It was a tape, and it merely said, Blessed art thou among women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. And it went on and on and on. That's the same thing as a joss stick in China, except it's a tape recording. One day, somewhere, a Catholic speaker went through the Magnificat of Mary. The angel who said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. And they pronounce that onto the tape recorder, and they just duplicate it, and they wind it up, and the Catholics pay for it, and it goes on endlessly for a half an hour, I believe. The same words over and over and over again. Here is a plain statement that vain repetitions, a practice of the heathen, prayer wheels, joss sticks, and candles, is useless and is actually condemned of Christ in the Bible. For they think they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, because your Father knows what things you have need of before you ask him. After this manner, therefore, pray ye. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. When he said, Little will they remember the things we say here, but long will they remember the things they did here, talking about the fallen on the battlefield. From that day on, our entire society has forgotten, basically, the things they did, the men who struggled and bled and died, and the greater issues at stake in the bloody American Civil War, and children in school for decades and generations have been forced to remember and to memorize and to repeat endlessly the Gettysburg Address. Lincoln was wrong. Long will they remember the words he spoke there. Little will they remember the things they did there. Jesus says, after this manner, according to this form or this way, therefore, pray ye. 
It's a form. It's an outline. It is a manner of prayer. What do they do? They memorize the outline and endlessly repeat it, and it goes down as time in prayer. And apparently, some sort of spiritual accolade, some sort of spiritual betterment accrues to their heavenly record in repeating endlessly the, quote, Lord's Prayer. This is not the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is found in John 14 through 17 when Christ was on his knees praying before God, saying, Heavenly Father, keep through thine own name thou those you have given me, because all thine are mine and mine are thine, and so on. Keep them through your Holy Spirit. He was praying. This is an outline. I want to talk to you about whether or not you are really heard. You know, the other night on Johnny Carson, he was faking having received a telephone call from the president. And all the time he was doing that, something was crossing the back of my mind. I thought, wouldn't it be funny if Ronald Reagan and the White House were watching that show and that actually, when that phone rang, instead of it being a fake phone in the studio where he was making fun of the idea of the president calling the Phillies locker room or the Orioles locker room after the uh, World Series and talking to the players and the coaches, that it actually was the president right during the program, Johnny would pick it up and say, wait a minute, I'm not kidding. He'd never get the audience to believe it. But it would have been hilarious if Ronald Reagan had really been on the telephone. That crossed my mind. And I wondered uh, the whole time, I wondered if it was going to happen. It didn't happen. Wouldn't it be amazing if someone came in here after the phone had, ring, had rung and said to you, you won't believe this, but the White House is calling. What would happen to your heart and your lungs and your viscera and your mind if the White House was calling? Who, me? Yeah, they want you. Who, 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 who in the White House? President Ronald Reagan wants to talk to you. It would just about drive you crazy. It would be one of the greatest events of your life, wouldn't it? You would be honored. You would say, I can't believe it's happening to me. There would be excitement. A lot of people would be so flustered. It would be disbelief mixed with fear. They wouldn't even know what to say. Mr. President, is this really you? You know, and they'd hear the voice. Really him? They wouldn't believe it. Think about the fact that Willie Nelson famous country western movie star uh, and, and singer, multi-millionaire, must make a million a day or so, uh, would want to talk to just you, have take you in his golf cart around his private 18-hole championship golf course that he only plays on. He's not a good golfer. He just always wanted to have a golf course, so he built one. And on his big estate down here somewhere in Texas. And Willie Nelson wants to talk to just you. Now, you know what I'm leading toward. I've written a real brief little article for the IN using a couple of these same analogies that I just turned in a day or so ago. But wouldn't it be exciting if you had an audience with the Pope? We've heard the story about, yeah, I know Joe, but who's the little guy with the beanie? Well, I'm not going to tell that story. Or the fact that the Texan went to the Vatican the other day and said, hey, you know, uh, 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 Pope uh, John, I I've got a, a great Polak story to tell you. Just a minute, said the Pope. Before you tell the Polak story, I want you to know that I am Polish. Oh, fine. Well, then I'll tell it real slow. Uh, I, I won't. Uh, I don't want to get into that. It's not a real funny joke, anyway. But you know, can you imagine? Can you imagine what it would be like if someone said, "You have an opportunity for an audience with the Pope." I mean, thump, thump, thump. Wow. How would I act? How can I, as a Christian, refer to him as His Holiness? Uh, I've got to find a way around that. You would be, you would be apprehensive. 
You would want to respect the man. He's a human being. He may even be a very sincere human being, and he may be overawed by the power of his own office. I, I've speculated that perhaps he is. I don't think the Pope wakes up every morning, I'm the false prophet. Another day with a false prophet. Uh, as the world turns, the man of sin has emerged. Watch me put on my robes and deceive the people. I don't think that's what goes through uh, Carol Oshtila's mind. I think he's a sincere, dedicated man. But would you... Uh, or can you honestly answer, wouldn't you be excited if the Pope wanted to have a personal audience with you, yourself? Now, you know, this thing of prayer is taken very much for granted by most people, I think by a lot of us in the church. Analogies are not the truth, but analogies do help us understand very great and important truths. So by analogy, I want you to understand a little bit about radio, what's happening as I talk and the microphone is picking up the sound. And also the fact that, as you all know, if you had a little handheld FM, AM, Sony, you could put it to your ear, and by tuning the dial around, you could hear all kinds of sounds in the room right now. Radio goes out really in two types of waves. One is called a carrier wave, and they actually have to modulate and adjust that frequency, and then they send the voice and the music and the sound along with that carrier wave. It's like putting two waves of sound, of frequency, together. In AM, that means amplitude modulated, which really means that the sound on AM radio increases the power. The sound changes, alters, interrupts the power surge, but it does not change or alter the frequency in any way. FM means frequency modulated, and the sound on that carrier wave actually changes the length of the frequency. Now, AM radio travels in two ways. It travels around the surface of the earth. It follows the curvature of the earth. There's a ground wave, it's called. And then there's what's called the sky wave. Even uh, hams, and uh, Mr. Dart has a ham radio license, and there are tens of thousands of them in the United States. He can pick up his radio and call people in Cuba, or people in Vietnam, or people in Tokyo, or people on a ship at sea in the South Pacific. And shortwave reaches over the entirety of the Earth. You know about the radio waves bouncing off the ionosphere. There are two ways. The sky wave bounces off the ionosphere. Believe it or not, a four-watt little CB radio may on occasion pick up a sky wave from hundreds or even thousands of miles away. A freakish thing can happen. For once in a great while, a little automobile unit of a CB will hear somebody talking from Cuba or somewhere in Central America. It happens freakishly. That's what's called a sky wave. It just bounces and it skips, sometimes in almost unpredictable manner. FM follows the curvature of the Earth. That's why they have to have direct line of sight, and FM has a very low uh, coverage pattern. Even 100,000 watts might have about 100 miles radius, and that's about it for FM. But it's basically so high frequency that it's basically free of a lot of static. But radio waves, right this instant, envelop you. They enclose you, and in fact, penetrate you. Penetrate your body. It's miraculous that people in security jobs, in big buildings, for example, can be inside huge high-rise steel and, and concrete and glass buildings, and somebody in the basement can pick up a handheld walkie-talkie with a little antenna no longer than that and communicate with somebody on the 14th floor. Those waves are going through all of that concrete. They're not impeded by all of the rebar and the thick floors and all the structure of the building. They're not flowing around through a wire. They're going through the air. Now, right at this instant, there are hundreds of thousands around the world, tens of thousands, 
of radio, television, AM and FM, VHF, UHF, long and short wave, radios aboard ships, radios in aircraft, radios at airports, radios over here at the approach facility, radios at the Tyler Airport, uh, KLTV Channel 7 is on the air. You could have a little portable rabbit ears in your hand in here. Tune it in, and here it would be. What I'm telling you is the truth, isn't it? You are right this instant as air has crept into every pore of your body. There's air in your ears. There's air up your nostrils. There's air in your lungs. And you are enveloped by, and in some ways your very body is is living and breathing and absorbing air, so is it absorbing waves, and those waves are capable of being interpreted into sound and into color and into pictures. What we don't think of in prayer, in talking to our Creator God, is that we are exactly like a little broadcasting station, that we have the power more than AM or FM or long or short wave, to project thought waves, brain waves, if you will, into space, no matter how far it takes, and actually communicate instantaneously with the mind of Almighty God. I got to thinking about when I would see the faces light up when this announcer, whose name I can't think of, on the price is right, will say, Martha McGillicuddy! And the camera goes over and finds dear Martha. And, come on down! You're the next player on the price is right. They pronounce her name. Her name strikes her like a shock. She goes, ah! and all of her friends and relatives start to applaud. Her husband can't believe it, and she is just trampling over ankles and knees and dying to get out of the aisle to come struggling down the aisle to arrive breathlessly and they get down there oh I can't believe it it's really me I've been looking at your program for 15 years I've been I just came out from Akron, Ohio calm down calm down now Martha you say you're from Akron, Ohio and on and on the program goes here's the poor woman ecstatic her name was pronounced can you imagine the ecstasy that you would experience if Almighty God in heaven above with His booming voice pronounced out of His own mouth your name. Garner Ted Armstrong. <gasps> what? You know, I can imagine it just like Cosby's record. You called. You know, somebody jokes every now and then they're walking out of doors as a huge thunderstorm. Old Lyle Christofferson used to do this to me. All of a sudden, boom, you called. You know, Lyle thought that was funny. I'm not sure that's all that funny. Because God does speak with a powerful voice. And I'll guarantee you, it would. It, you can see. You can see occasions in the life of Jacob. Occasions in the life of John. Occasions in the life of men like Ezekiel. Struck dumb. Occasions like in the life of Paul. Blind. On his face in the ground. He hears a voice. Paul, why are you persecuting me? What? Was that you, Lord? Boy, was he ever ready to listen. A heavenly voice called his name. Saul, what are you doing to my church? Oh, man, was he ever ready to listen. I think we take our power of communication very much for granted. I think we take the fact of our calling, of our contact with Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, very, very much for granted. 
If you would turn to Romans, the 8th chapter, you know, prayer is not just something we Christians do. Prayer is not a badge. It isn't a decoration. It isn't something that we get up and outrighteous each other with. I've seen all of that. I've been that route. I've been there. I've seen people play church with prayer. A minister who wants to put down his congregation may, in his own mind and heart, know that he hasn't prayed in a week. But he can get up there if he wants to and single out a hundred different scriptures and he can sound very austere. And by the time the whole thing is over, I remember one man one time that talked about there being silence in heaven for the space of half an hour, you know, and quoted me a scripture out of the book of Revelation and how it would be if there was silence in heaven and no message coming up from you. One time a person extrapolated the number of hours required in prayer and took it on out to about a year and added it up to an hour a day and then said if you fall behind by six months, here's how many hours you got to make up. There were people who went to college, especially in England this was true, where the hierarchy was absolutely true to the voice of the prophet, and I mean it was clamped down and screwed down tight, and I mean the parameters were rather limited. The prayer booth on the campus was a little soundproof closet with a little red light and a one-way lock. You went in there, you turn on the light inside, you turn a little red light outside. So you walked and you knew in the early, murky, pre-dawn London darkness that someone was in there because the little red light was on. People allowed as how. The longer you were out of contact with God, the farther you slipped behind. And people began to set a standard. And that standard became one hour a day. Now, someone decided to outrighteous the concept of an hour of prayer a day and decided you ought to add to that an hour of meditation. Now, you just you try sometime. You see, I know some people can do this. I can't, frankly. I can't just go to a chair and say, now I'm going to meditate. And look at the carpet, look out the window, see a bluebird go by, watch the fan or whatever. I am thinking. I am thinking about the fan. Oh, that's a pretty fan. It's brass, got wooden blade going around and around and around. Uh, it has little holes in it. That's probably to cool the coils, maybe. I don't know how to do that. I do not know how to take my body and sit it down and say, now I'm going to meditate for an hour. But they made you believe that if you did not do that, you were not quite as good a Christian as those who did. Now, in addition to that, you had to study the Bible on your own. You could not study a magazine put out by the church. wasn't fair. couldn't study a booklet put out by the church. You couldn't study the correspondence course. You're supposed to do that anyway. If you're a student, you can't study the lesson for today in the Epistle to Paul class because that's required. You've got to have, in order to really grow, special, unique, private Bible study that you study all by yourself. There's three hours I'm looking at, right? Now, I've got to make up my dorm bed, and I've got to be there for early prep for breakfast because the rest of them are going to come stumbling in after their three hours of study, meditation, and prayer at approximately 6.30 to get breakfast. But I've got to be there at 5.30. 4.30, I got it figured. I got to get up at midnight. I couldn't go to bed till about 10. Lights out. I'm getting two hours of sleep at night to be a good student. Of course, no one ever did it. You know what that did? Caused endless problems of guilt, of feelings of being an inferior Christian, of forced comparisons, of people walking around with their head in the air thinking, I bet he's praying more than I am, and I bet I feel guilty because of that. It's really... A bunch of nonsense. It's people playing church. It is not godly. It's not of God or from God. It is not the way Almighty God wants to talk to you or that you should talk to Him. In the 8th chapter of the book of Romans, 
the little Bible within a Bible, is really the whole story of the purpose of human beings on this earth. I'm going to read only portions of it because it is a very deep and a very full-fleshed and vitally important chapter because it has to do with the rebirth of our bodies and becoming literally spirit beings. He says, beginning in verse, I'll just break in the middle of it, in verse 11, If the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you. Now, I said radio waves penetrate your body. I want you to remember that God's Holy Spirit does not come into your knee or your elbow or your sacroiliac. It comes into your brain. You have a mind. You have a brain. You could take it out and look at what you couldn't eat, of course. But I mean, you know, God could. But it weighs a certain amount, and it's, it's gray matter and kind of funny little uh, curls in it. You can go down to the market here and buy calves' brains and look at it sometime. I don't go for that sort of thing. Yuck, you know, I couldn't eat calves' brains. But you look at it and you think, wow, imagine that, that dumb cow had to have all that stuff in that head to get it to chew its cud and wander around and all that. Cows are placid, but they got a brain about as big or bigger than yours. you got a brain. The Holy Spirit of God comes into your mind, not your elbow or your kneecap. God's Spirit is able, in much the same way, but perhaps with lightning-like speed, radio waves travel at 186,282 miles per second. God's Spirit probably travels at billions or quintillions of billions of miles a second. Uh, radio waves are limited because they're, in a sense, physical, quote-unquote, if you see what I mean, because they are sound frequencies that must travel in this created universe of whom God is the author, and God is not bound by the laws that he has put in motion in the universe. God is to dwell with his life-giving Spirit in you. He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken, enliven your mortal bodies by His Spirit that lives, dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after or according to the deeds of the flesh. If you live after the flesh, that's meaning with physical appetites, satisfying the carnal desires, not having spiritual consciousness, not living as a Christian. If you live according to the flesh, that's everybody out there in the world that you know, living according to the flesh, you shall die. Truer words were never spoken. But if ye through the Spirit do put to death, meaning conquer, subdue, not embarrass, mortify is the King James word, but it means really kill, the deeds of the body, meaning the evil deeds, not every deed, not a good handshake, not a friendly clap on the back, not giving your sister who is starving groceries, not writing a letter or a card to a sick person, but the evil deeds of the body, you shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now, for many, many years in flying a jet airplane and many other types of aircraft as well, I have had to be led, almost like being led by a spiritual hand in the blackness of some of the most frightening weather, unerringly by a beam. My dad used to come to the cockpit. I didn't fly him but once in my life. But he would always express amazement and in, in a jocular vein. He really knew, but he didn't go into it to understand about uh, omni-navigation or about the Mini-Loran or perhaps uh, LFMF, Global Navigation Systems, or INS or anything else. 
And so because he wasn't really familiar with the way the radio waves worked or the tuning in of frequencies and the directional needles that actually could be centered in a little flight director system, not only in a lateral but a vertical sense so you could have two bars and actually fly down a three-degree corridor to bring you right to the threshold of a landing strip in murky gloom or hail or snow or fog or rain or what have you or all of those, uh, he would sit there in the, in, in the jump seat and he would comment to people aboard the aircraft, isn't it marvelous every time they can't see a thing and yet here we are over the airport and there's the runway right in front of the airplane. How do they do that, he would say. He got a joke out of that. He got a kick out of it. He knew they could do it and vaguely understood maybe how, but never technically how. I understand fairly well, I think, as anyone, technically how that is done. It's a radio beam. It's a radio wave, not unlike, as a matter of fact, on an ADF approach, it's identically a radio station. ADF is tracking into a, an AM radio station. It is on your, your map, and there you are on your chart, and you tune it in, and the needle tells you a direct bearing exactly where that station is, and you fly to it. It's just that simple. But you know, ILS, a little more sophisticated than that, and the CAT-2 ILS, a little more sophisticated yet if you had the comparable uh, equipment, including a radar altimeter to, get, to be measured in tens of feet accuracy in the cockpit, you can go down to 100 feet and a quarter mile, where basically limits are 200 and a half. Many, many, many hours of my life I have spent out over the North Atlantic, coming into Iceland or between St. John's and the Azores, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles out of sight of land, following a little, you know, slightly oscillating, wiggling line on a flight director or little V-bars that will ever so slightly turn as I'm following a beam of electricity that is beaming to me from a station, maybe a ship, or maybe out in Santa Maria in the Azores or Lajes over there, the Air Force Base, from hundreds of miles away and following that beam unerringly and arrive at my destination. Excellent analogy, I think because it is almost like an unseen hand that reaches out and safely guides you. You see the ad to try to get people to join the army? A young lady is doing the transmitting. A young man, two of them in uniform, are in a helicopter. It's IFR, solid overcast. She is saying, come right to so-and-so degrees, come left, you're only a mile from the threshold, etc. And it's one of these approaches which is a radar approach in which they have you on their radar screen and lined up with the runway and they actually tell you how to manipulate the controls in the cockpit and talk you down. Well, in a helicopter, you, the process is a lot slower than a jet aircraft, but at the end of it, thanks a lot for the help, and, and she takes off the, uh, the microphone, the earphones, you know, and it's, it's a great experience. They're safely down. I like that analogy because it says, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now, the only direction in which the Spirit of God is going to lead you is in the direction of God's law. God's law is like the carrier wave of the frequencies of God's Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit is like the waves that are broadcast along the carrier beam to reach our minds inasmuch as right now in this room your body is bombarded by, enveloped by, and even penetrated by radio waves. So can your God penetrate your mind. Your mind 
is able to penetrate the consciousness and the mind of God. You have a broadcasting transmitter, and God has the receiver. You have a receiver, He has a transmitter. You can be in two-way communication. It is not a one-way street. It is a two-way communication you have with Almighty God in heaven above. Look a little later in verse 16. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit. Yes, we have a human spirit. Job said there is a spirit in man. It is a spiritual essence that has no consciousness apart from the brain, connected with the brain. It gives the brain volition, willpower, personality, emotion, conscience, more than just motor facility, more than physical athletic ability, more than memory, more than the ability to inculcate thoughts or to memorize data or numbers or speeches or anything else, but that part that makes you cry, the part that makes you sigh and cry for the abominations around you, that part in which love and the capability to love and to feel hurt for other people resides. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are God's kids the children of God. And if children, then we are heirs to inherit what God has. Now, I'm telling you something that the churches of the world absolutely do not know, not a one of them, not the Catholic Church, not a single Protestant church in the world knows that we are God's kids and we're going to be born of Him and made in His image inasmuch as my kids are made in my image and my wife's image sitting right here in the room today. And they're Armstrong kids and they look like them and they are the very nature and flesh and bone and general shape, and they bear the characteristics of their maternal and paternal grandparents as well as their two parents. And when we are born of God, we will have the very look, the talent, the ability, the characteristics, the nature, character of our Father who is in heaven, who has begotten us, joint heirs with Christ. What did Christ inherit? Christ said, I have inherited... In different words, lo, he said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. That's what he's inherited. He's inherited already eternity. He is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. As Charlie said, there are occasions where he might stand up for God's people. He's there, literally, at this instant. He has inherited heaven and the power of God's throne. It says here, we are joint heirs. Somebody's going to inherit a million dollars. You're a joint heir. Don't you get half a million? Isn't that the way I understand it? If you're a joint heir, you're absolutely an equal heir. You share in that total inheritance. And it says here, we're joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. Then he says that the sufferings at this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. How important to you is the life of Marconi. How much do you know about him? Uh, very little, I imagine. Many people would think, well, what did he invent? Macaroni? Um, how, how important to you would be the life of... Uh, well, I could I'd probably you know, pull a few names like Nostradamus. He's a famous seer from way back when and had a little surge of popularity here recently in the public sphere. You know, there are millions, hundreds of millions of lives that have been lived many of which, most of which, have been wasted. Others have been very important, of which you know nothing. 
You can go across the street. There's a cemetery over there. You can go down here to Flint and out here to Jacksonville and find some of the old cemeteries. You can go over here across the Red River to Mansfield, Louisiana, and you can find where a major battle, the Civil War, was fought, and you can see cemeteries that go back to the pre-Civil War days. You can read the names there, 1839, 1847. Who were those people? Their lives, so far as you're concerned, have been at least as important to you, but not quite, as the last mosquito that bit you. May I speculate? About that important, but not quite. Now, how much time in the time of history? I've been inside the Great Pyramid. I go over and I marvel. I think this stood when Jesus walked the streets of Nazareth. Before he was born, I reach out and I touch with my hand huge stones that were polished and you can't even put a razor blade between them that were seated and fit in place by master engineers thousands of years ago. And there it stands. You can see it in a jet airplane at 31,000 feet dominating the skyline of Cairo, Egypt. And here it stands, a monument of tens of thousands of dead slave laborers and I think of the great motion pictures that have tried to portray the huge sand ramp and dragging those giant cubes of polished granite up there and the fact that it had smooth white marble on the outside of it. It wasn't rough like it appears today at all. It was a huge finish to it, all because of a burial place for a king. And I think of all of those tumultuous wars, Hannibal, crossing the Alps. Love to study that. Hear how he did it. I try to think of the pens in Africa of the legions of men it took to catch whole herds of African elephants. They can't even do it today. Barnum and Bailey can't show you an African elephant trained to do what an Indian or an Asian elephant can do. But Hannibal did it and crossed the Alps and defeated some Romans until later on he was defeated. And I think of Belisarius and the Carthaginians and I think of the great wars, Alexander the Great and some of the huge big naval battles that have passed, Anthony and Cleopatra and some of the huge battles where great battleships were hurling stones and boiling oil and thousands of arrows at each other. And all the tumult and the shouting and the screams of war and of centuries of man are not even a remote little whisper so far as the way God counts time. I'll tell you, if you study that, I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us, and get in your mind the concept of eternity. And then get in your mind the concept of how long your life has lasted. I look at mine, I'm saying, hey, you're the wrong side of a half century. And it has been so quick, it all went rushing by. It just drives me crazy sometimes. I think, hang on, I want to grab the grass out here in the lawn and hold real tight and stop this dumb world from turning. I can't do that. I'm just a passenger, and here we go. You know, right now, you know which way we're going, don't you? We're going this way, because that's west. So right now we're rolling this way, aren't we? Because we're rolling away from the sun stationary. You just think it's going down. It's not. We're just rolling away from it and going right over backwards here, and then we'll come up again. We'll see it around over there. But it should be where it was, because we're on a round earth. Heirs of all eternity, of the glory of the very family of God, the earnest expectation of the creation, as it should read in verse 19, waits for the revealing, the evidence, the physical manifestation of the sons of God. For the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who was subjected the same in hope. 
because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption, which is what our lives really consist of and what consists of our society all around us in crime and rape and kiddie porn and the runaways and abandonments and desertions and a flagging sick economy and an arms race and what's going on in Lebanon with the Christians having been transplanted from the Shuf and the Shiite Muslims coming in in very great power there, the deeply divisive struggles between the Maronite Christians and the Shiite Muslims and the Syrians and the Lebanese and a nation that is being torn apart. And we know, verse 22, that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And that's true. And even the very sounds of nature seem to be sounds of pain. The cries of wild animals are basically lonely calls, like that of a loon or migrating Canadian geese. They don't sing. They're not happy, even though David exalts in praise that the hills ought to sound praises to God, and the trees and the valleys ought to exult. But they don't really. They sigh as the wind whispers through them. Creation itself travails in pain. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body, for we're saved by hope, and hope that is seen is not hope. Why would a man hope for that which he doesn't have? But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities, for we don't know how we ought to pray. Now here is one of the most important passages of the Bible to me. And a lot of people can't quite handle this. They want to go into languages. They want to go into, quote, the prayer language. They want to go off into some other form, almost a different method, but like a joystick or, or like a prayer wheel or like a tinkling symbol on your porch of finding that one thing that is most satisfying to this being up there which will please his sense of smell, if we think of God as having a sense of smell, which will please his sense of sound or somehow please him emotionally. If we could kind of set ourselves in a certain mood or frame of mind and then with our tongues or with our body maybe make holy gestures, God would be pleased. This, to me, is very important. The Spirit helps our infirmities, our stupid, mundane, human failings and our weaknesses. We don't even know how or what we should pray for. Remember when the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. John, the 11th chapter, verse 1. And through that chapter, Lazarus' tomb in verse 41, when Jesus said, I thank thee, Father, that you have heard me. And that is the place in John 11 where John's version, and it is his report of the sample prayer of Jesus, the Lord's Prayer, is given. But the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. That isn't given in Matthew's account, so you don't get that unless you read John. That his Lord's Prayer was given as a result of a request from his disciples. Teach us how should we pray. He said, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father, which art in heaven. The Spirit helps our infirmities. We know not what we should pray for as we ought but the Spirit itself makes intercession for us. Now, this is something you can't do for yourself. I think there is a great deal to the concept of trying 
to get salvation for ourselves and to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps into the kingdom of God. It's carried to an opposite extreme by many churches who say, you do nothing and Christ does it all for you like he lived a righteous life in your stead. But there is also the statement, even at the crossing of the Red Sea, stand ye still and see the salvation of our God. Be still and so on. Yes, that's in the Bible too. And there are times in our life when we can do nothing, when we can't even pray as we ought. There are times in our life, brethren, when we can't even pray. Not only that we can't even pray as we ought, but our minds get so messed up that there are times in our life where other things come in and hatreds and anxieties and resentments and fixations and concepts and fears and resentments and wanting to get even that we justify ourselves in staying away from the call that says a lot more than President Reagan wants you on the phone. God calls your name and says, come on down. It's your turn. We don't even hear it because we're not tuned in. We don't have the receiver going, and we don't have the transmitter going. And there are times in our life when we don't even allow the Spirit of God to make intercession for us with groanings we don't know how to speak, which cannot be uttered. The Spirit of God is completely surrounding you at this minute. The Spirit of God is able, if you let it, to penetrate into your brain and your mind at this minute. Waves that man is able to manufacture with tubes and transistors and with wires attached to antenna are bombarding your body. You believe it, don't you? You know it's true. You could prove it. You don't feel it, but it's there. You can't feel the Spirit of God, but it's there. It's in the room. He's here now. He's able to penetrate your mind. And you're able, even there in your chair, during services... Father in heaven, thank you for this. Or talk to him. And do you know that when you get that little transmitting set in action and you turn it on and you get in the right wavelength, you're actually communicating. Now, I want you to think of that in much the same way as you would think of yourself as an operator of a radio station. There's no doubt in the engineer's mind when he throws the big switch and he hears the hum and he sees all the lights light up and he tunes it to exactly the right megacycles, that he's on the air because he's got a monitor up there and a little speaker that is taking all those pulsating waves, changing it to a vibration that his ear can pick up, and he can hear the proof of it. It's out there miles away at the transmitter, comes back, and of course the monitor in the radio studio is not coming from the transmitter itself in the studio. It's coming from the transmitter and the tower from the ionosphere back down to a normal radio set into the little box there, the little speaker in the studio, to prove that they're on the air. So if lightning strikes, that box goes off. He wouldn't know it otherwise because the record is still playing, the announcer's in there at the microphone, still going away. He doesn't know whether he's getting out or not unless he's got a receiver in action and he can hear that that voice or that music is coming out over the air. And so it is with us when we pray to our God. I want to give you a couple of quick examples of how the Bible tells us to pray. I want to go to a lot of them. There are many, many of them. Mark 11:25, when you stand praying, forgive in your heart, etc. 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands and wives ought to be together and not be fighting and arguing, quote, that your prayers be not hindered. Psalm 51 is a prayer of repentance. There are dozens of psalms. I know now why the book of Psalms was my mother's very favorite part of the Bible. She read it, underlined it, studied it. It was her casual reading 
not intensive, fervent study. It was relaxed reading. It was inspirational reading. She would pick it up in the car waiting for my dad, or she would take it with her and travel overseas, and she would simply pick up the Psalms and read through it. In the... Well, 139th, I'm going to go to the 51st. Let's go to the 51st Psalm first. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according unto the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions. How secret, how private is this conversation? You know, we like to think of the sounds of little children, the sounds that they make. There's no sound that will elicit more tender concern than a whimper from a little baby, especially a hurt cry, when a child literally has been hurt and maybe fallen down and got a big red scab starting to form on the knee or maybe stuck itself with a pin or burnt itself or something like that and just cries out in pain. Boy, does that ever get to the hearts of the parent. They hear a child cry out in pain. And what is the parent going to do? Pick up that child immediately to take care of that hurt place, try their best to somehow mollify that pain, comfort the child, hug the child, kiss the child. Oh, you poor dear, I'm so sorry you're hurt. It's a beautiful sound. I'll tell you, there's a prettier sound to Almighty God. That is the sound of a full-grown, mature man sobbing like his heart would break. A man who knows how to cry. King David was a great king, and he cried at the top of his lungs, even before his people. He would stand in the office of a king and just cry out to God and break the, the tone of his voice until he couldn't control his voice, tears streaming down his face, crying before Almighty God. And God loved that in David. He loved the fact that David was a repenter, a grown man could sob like a little baby child to God. Not because David wanted to do that in front of people. Oh, no. David could do that in a desert place. He could do it. He said, all night long the tears ran down my face. Read some of the psalm. 51st Psalm is a prayer of repentance. One of the most meaningful, beautiful in all of the Bible. Verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. In Psalm 55, you have troubles? Enemies? It's an us-them problem, is it? Here's a beautiful one. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not thyself from my supplication. Attend to me and hear me. I mourn in my complaint and make a noise because of the voice of my enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. They cast iniquity upon me, and in wrath they hate me. But he's saying, I don't hate them. They hate me. My heart is pained within me. The terrors of death are falling upon me. Verse 8, I would hasten my escape from the windy storm and tempest. Destroy, O Lord, and divide their tongues. Destroy their words. Destroy their language. Destroy their hostile speech. Not, you know, kill them or get even with them. Notice what he says. It's quite fascinating. Verse 12. For it was not an enemy that reproached me. I don't know why this is personally important to me. Then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me that did magnify himself against me. Then I would have hid myself from him. But it was thou, a man my equal, my teacher, my guide, my leader, and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together. 
There's no sweeter counsel than in hunting camp, staring into a fire, sipping the last little bit of a Jack Daniels before you go to bed. There's no sweeter counsel than after an hour and a half of basketball, sitting in a sauna, pouring out your innermost secrets to a man in whom you trust. There's no closer fellowship than two young men in a boat fishing for bass. There are times when men and when women get together and they talk. And when you have a close friend, I mean a real close friend, that's what David's talking about. We took sweet counsel together and walked into the house of God in company. We went to church together. We were church-going friends. And who, is he saying, betrayed him? Verse 16, is for me, I will call upon God, and the Eternal will save me. Evening and morning and at noon will I cry, and cry aloud. Sometimes there's a time and a place for that. And he will hear my voice. Verse 19, God will hear. Verse 20, he has put forth his hands against such as be at peace with him. Meaning the enemy has done this. He, the enemy, has broken his word, broken his covenant, broke his contract. wasn't true to his word. The words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. You can find a psalm for every occasion. You can find a psalm to make your prayer. That's why the book is here. God was beautifully touched by David's prayer, and David accompanied it with music. And God caused it to be put in the Bible. It's there not just only for your inspirational reading, but it's there for you sometimes to get on your knees and to pronounce aloud and to make into your own prayer. You know, all the way along we've said, because it's in God's Word, not by might or by strength or by power or anything like that, but by my Spirit, says the Eternal. This, the Church of God International, must be a praying church. We must be in close personal communication with Almighty God. You know, they've got all these slogans like, reach out and touch someone, where the elderly black grandmother is moved to tears because someone called just to say, I love you, Mom, and that's a beautiful ad. I love it. And there's the, the ad that says, Coke is it. No, the Holy Spirit is it. God is it. Christ and salvation, they are it. Reach out and touch someone, sure, your brother, your sister and Jesus Christ and Almighty God the Father. They sing, it looks like a strolight night. Well, it ought to look like a brother and sister or a family night. And some of these little jingles and slogans that they use to sell millions of dollars of, of uh, things that are going to rot your teeth and ruin your digestive tract uh, ought to be applied to the Word and the work of Almighty God. You know, Paul said something very pr profound in concluding. Let's go to Acts 17 and verse 16. Paul said very profoundly that God isn't really pleased with some of the things that we human beings do. He was waiting at Athens, verse 16. His spirit was stirred in him when he saw the whole city given over to idolatry. And he was disputing with the Jews, and certain of these philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics, encountered him and said, What will this babbler say? He began to tell them about the true God who made heaven and earth and all the rest. Verse 24, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwells not in temples made with hands. You can't build a house. God says in Isaiah 66, Where is the house you build unto me? Where is my home? Neither is worshipped with men's hands. That means with a saw or an axe. It means with funny gestures. 
It means with physical work. That's not the way you worship God. He's not worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. God doesn't need anything. Seeing he gives to all life and breath and all things, and has made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and is appointed before the times before appointed, and the bounds of their borders and habitations, that they should seek the eternal of the Lord, if haply they might feel after him. Remember that beam that leads jet aircraft through fog to a safe landing and a destination. Those that are led by the Spirit of God, he will lead you along the way of his life, of his law, and of the Sermon on the Mount, of the teaching of Christ. If haply they might feel after him and find him. Next time you get to hear the Elijah, and the tenor sings, If with all your heart you truly seek him. I hope you sit there and just bawl like I do when I hear that song. One of the most moving I've ever heard. If you feel after him, seek him in prayer, and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. In Him we live and move and have our being, said Paul. And then cited what one of the pagan poets had said, that we're the offspring, verse 29, of God. We're God's offspring. We're God's children. We can communicate with the most awesome power, the greatest being in heaven and in earth. He is only a thought, only a prayer away. Prayer means petition. Prayer means ask. Prayer just means request. It's an English word. It carries religious connotation because it's, I pray. They use it in legal terms. Your prayer, I pray this and that, in legal depositions. A prayer is a request. A prayer is saying, Father, help me. Father, hear me. Father, will you listen to me when nobody else will? We've got to be a praying church. God is far easier for you to contact than your neighbor across town on a pay telephone and far more willing to listen.